our first guest, Radcliffe Royce, is a remarkable man. He's a gifted storyteller. He's going to tell his story in his own way. Um, so without further ado, please welcome Radcliffe to the stage, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Damien. Good evening, everybody. I'm assured that I can't lower the tone, <laughs> which is lucky. Um, I want you to cast your mind back to the summer of 2001, late summer 2001, where my story started not in Soho, um, but on the, a drive back from Bournemouth, where I had enjoyed a weekend with friends. And I was driving back in my rather nice Audi Coupe <laughs> 2.0, fully loaded, <laughs> back to my rather nice genteel home in Clapham, where my second wife, second ex-wife as it turned out, <laughs> uh, was, uh, yes, I, I've had several wives, two of them are my own, and um, <laughs> this story really uh, describes the ending uh, of that second marriage, which came as a complete surprise to me. I arrived back in London about nine o'clock at night, and I put my key into the lock, and it didn't really work. Banging, key, checked, right key, okay, something's up. Cut a long story short, ten minutes later, I find myself on my knees to this woman for a second time only this time through a letterbox, <laughs> negotiating the end of my second marriage. It was devastating. Now, I know a lot of people here will be married, and if you're not, you're going to be. And I'm not someone that handles rejection well. I know it's hard to imagine rejection. <laughs> and uh, from the back, you're probably thinking mid to late 30s. <laughs> But in fact, um, I, uh, I'm a little bit older than that. And I did what every free spirit of the age does when crisis hits, is I rang a friend. And I went, oh man, mate, she's thrown me out, it's all over, it's a nightmare. And he just went, just come, just come. And I started my journey, I went to Notting Hill Gate, where my great friend and old compadre just welcomed me at the door with a big hug and said, dude, sounds a nightmare, what a bitch, come on in. <laughs> and his girlfriend just stood behind him, and as he revealed, she stood there with a tray of rather exotic-looking pharmaceuticals. Now, I know we're being recorded, and <laughs> I, I, I just want to say that there is no outstanding charges for me, so I can speak, <laughs> I can speak freely, but be, feel free to identify anywhere along the line. He put... Uh, basically, I put a crack pipe in my hand and um, sort of said, welcome to the breath of the virgin. <laughs> and I, the breath of the virgin, if you didn't get that. I know we're in Soho, a virgin, by the way. Then <laughs> clear. Just checking, just checking. I took to this like a duck to water and I didn't care about anything. It was just wonderful and all my problems went away and I, I still had the joint account and that was getting me 300 quid a day and I just, <laughs> off I went. with a, I went completely tonto. I was going up most of the day on the crack and then of course you have to take the heroin to come down 
And then, of course, you have to steal from your friends to keep it going. <laughs> then they find out, they throw you out. And so I'm back on the street. And through a long process, I ended up in Soho, home of all those dark desires and fantasies. The an anonymity of Soho just, ah, oh, it appealed. And I thought, well, I'll give it one last try. And I rang my mother. Hi, Mum. How would it be if I came home for a few days? Oh, no, dear. Our insurance wouldn't cover that. <laughs> and put the phone down. I was busted. Everybody knew he'd gone mad. He's on drugs. Don't go near him. So I'm in Soho, addicted, heavily addicted to drugs. And I've just put the phone down. I've got the final rejection from, from the last place that you would expect sanctuary. Oh, my mum. And... Uh, this guy sidled up to me. He's quite a bit shorter than me, a lot of people are. And uh, he had a spider web tattoo across half his face. Oh, I know that guy. Brilliant. I don't know him, but I know he's in my house. Delroy, as he would introduce himself. And Delroy approached me. Hello, mate. Sounded quite like Keith Richards. Hello, mate. How are you doing? He said, do you need anything? And I thought, well, this guy, he'll... I said, yeah, well, let's get something to smoke. Da, 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 da. I said, what I really need is a place to crash, man. Don't worry about it. Come with me. And I followed him, and we, we sort of went up Dean Street, and I thought, hmm. And then I saw the back of the Soho Hotel, and I'm thinking, oh, my luck is in it. <laughs> Having never been um, uh, a prostitute, um, I was being open-minded at this point. I didn't, like, <laughs> didn't quite know how it was going to play out. Um, well, I wasn't going to get gender-specific at this point, I tell you. It was a troubled time. And as we were approaching the hotel, he took a left down Richmond Mews and took me to a 12-yard builder's skip. And effectively, I spent the next three to four months, or just under four months, living in a skip. And I do like to tell everyone it was a convertible skip. It had a rag top. <laughs> And, uh, I, you know, I had a skip mate, so it wasn't all bad. And <laughs> he taught me what I needed to do to survive on the street in Soho as a sort of fallen angel, sort of latter-day posh boy. So there was me in one set of clothes, him with his spiderweb tattooed face and his beer mat trousers, and I running around, keeping a drug habit going. And you have to get creative. Most of it's chicken wings out of Sainsbury's, to be honest. And I thought I was performing a useful social service because I got a tie-in with the woman that does the sort of Meals on Wheels for the old people. And she offered me 50p in the pound for everything I got her. So I got a tray of steaks for a tenner. She'd give me a fiver for it. So I'm actually helping the homeless and the needy. I mean, let's think about it. I was performing a public service. And I eventually, uh, the first time I got into trouble, I got nicked for uh, stealing a leg of lamb. Yeah. Uh, and it had, um, it had a tracking device in it. <laughs> I mean, a leg of lamb. <laughs> and I got, uh, I, I, I got sent off to, uh, to prison. And I got sent to Wandsworth for a, a week, I think. Short slap on the wrist. Quite deservedly, I might add. But, I mean, have a little bit of sympathy because I, I don't know if any of you, actually looking around, I don't think any of you have been to prison. But... <laughs> For those that have, you'll know the, that moment when you're in reception and they go, hello, son, what are you in for? Now, ordinarily, you want to have a bit of bullion in there, maybe a machine gun or two, 
you know, Van Gogh's art, bullion, jewels. A leg of lamb just doesn't <laughs> cut it. <laughs> doesn't. So uh, the, the humiliation of that. And then I came out, and I had nowhere to go but back to my skiff in Delroy. And we kept going, we kept going, and we kept going, running, you know, hunters in the middle of the night up to the clubs. We would, uh, one of my great brainwaves, you know, I had a private education, I was an intelligent man. I knew what we'd do. We stole foot spars out of boots. I thought, we're going to sell them to all the girls in the flats. But of course, they don't work on their feet, so they really didn't. <laughs> it didn't work out. <laughs> By the time we get to sort of, a, it was around September time, and you know, the weather's going to turn, and I'm thinking, this is budget. And I said, you know, we're living this sort of hideous latter day with nail and eye existence. <laughs> and um, he was I. Um, and I, <laughs> I said, I said, Del, we really need to upgrade. This is bullshit. I said, you know what we need to do is we need to rob a bank. Now, it was a Thursday afternoon, beautiful day. Beautiful day, we were lying in Soho Square, actually. Lying there, we'd had our government grant in terms of our incapacity benefit books, we'd cashed that, so we hadn't had to put ourselves on offer. And I said, we need to cut out the middle, Mandel. We need to go large, we're going to go and take a bank. And we thought it was such a good idea. We were high as kites, and it just seemed like a good idea. We just breathe in, just empty the drawers, nothing heavy. And by the time we got our shit together, it was Sunday morning. And <laughs> okay, so you're with me. <coughs> yeah, and uh, not to be deterred by the rather inconvenient opening hours of the branch we'd chosen, um, I persuaded him that we could go in as part of the Portuguese cleaning crew. <laughs> now, bearing in mind, my only training for this caper had been a few trays of meat out of, out of uh, <laughs> can I say, yeah, Sainsbury's Waitrose, sorry, um, <laughs> and various other, oh, Tesco's, every little house. And, um, <laughs> so we'd gone in, my Portuguese, to be fair, you know, I'd spent holidays in the Algarve, I could get you a couple of beers and a coffee, but convincing you that I was part of the cleaning crew, not going to happen. It all kicked off, one thing led to another. I am chased down and a Bob the Builder Have a Go Hero parked his Nissan Urban on my feet and I was nicked. Get your trousers. <laughs> You're nicked. And of course, the, Chris, the police thought it was Christmas. Um, every uh, unexplained meat theft was suddenly <laughs> discovered and I got sent off to, quite rightly, got sent off to prison. And to be honest, it was an upgrade because my time in Soho had got very dark and very scary and very lonely. So I had instant friends. But I couldn't walk. This guy had parked his van on my feet. My legs had swollen up. And I just, uh, you know, I was stuck in a cell feeling very sorry for myself. And they said, actually, we need to get him to a hospital to check him out. And I had this sort of what I call kebab leg disease where my legs had swollen up. I, I mean... Anyway, to get me to the hospital, they, they shackled me like that, my wrists locked together. Not handcuffs, proper shackles, no Victorian stuff. Probably worn by Oscar Wilde, I imagine, the last <laughs> time. And then they shackled me to another guy on the other arm, and then another guard on the other arm. So I have got three sets of shackles. I am physically pinioned to two enormous human beings. They then put a leather belt around my waist on a 20-foot steel chain. I look like Hannibal Lecter on a dare. 
where was I going to run? I had broken toes, my leg, I could barely stand. And they took me actually to Chelsea and Westminster Hospital where they've got these revolving doors. <laughs> You're with me. Okay, so the three of us could get in. <laughs> so that was easy. It was the guy on the chain. I'm telling you, he just couldn't. The whole thing's jammed up. We've got the janitor. There's no discreet in the back door. Oh, no. So the whole thing's causing utter mayhem and chaos. And I was taken up, didn't think, and Chelsea Westminster Hospital had this really long corridor. And it just so happened that a cousin of my second ex-wife, Pendy, <laughs> as it transpired, was doing a sort of friends of the hospital books table, you know, raising money for, 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 for people. And she sort of saw my head in the distance through the crowd. <laughs> to be fair, the last time she'd seen me was in a sort of white suit doing our man in Havana at my wedding. Funny, I've been the Algarve, actually. Um, <laughs> Portugal's a recurring theme, clearly. And as I walked past, manacled to these guys on this chain, she was so shocked that she passed out. <laughs> Lightweight. No, she, it, was, it was quite horrific for her. And, but the, the point being was that for the first time since that fateful night when I just thought, I'll just have a, you know, a bit of a party to get through a broken heart, I saw myself as others must see me. And I was utterly appalled. I think I'm going to leave it there. The rest is the journey upwards gets me in front of you today. Thank you. that easily. I still have to find oh. out what a virgin is. I'm so excited. Um, so anyway, so... Turn I, around, I'll show you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I mean, li listening to that story is just, you know, it's obviously hilarious and it's something that you've thought about and you've talked about a lot, but it is your life, you know, and yes. you, you really were, you know, the guy that some of us would have talked to or walked past, you know, in the street, I mean, what, what year are we talking about here? Again? 2001. 2001, so you know, just over 10 years ago, just after the new millennium, yeah. you know, you, you were living in a skip. And what was, wh what was Soho like to you in that position, having been in it before, you know, as a person with, with money and status and privilege? You, you, you know, was it, was it help? Were people kind? Were they cruel? You, do you know, uh, funnily enough, my, my overriding memory of that time, although it was scary and lonely, whatever, but actually, yeah, was the human kindness I got shown by other people. I was not, um, I was not someone you wanted to hang out with. I mean, uh, one quick anecdote. Uh, you don't have to be quick. You're, you're, you're saying Well, there, my time in Soho, you did used to have to be quick, because I used <laughs> to get complete strangers shooting up all sorts of chemicals, uh, without being too graphic, but in my neck, because it was the easiest place for me to get an injection in those points, because, you know, I'd gone very budget. Um, and people would come out of the office and go, oh, we're going to call the police. We're going to call the police. And I would just snarl at them. You do what you like. I'm going to be gone in two minutes, and I know where you work. And it just became animal. But what was so interesting was the, what one might call the darker side. Um, 
My best friends were the doorman at sort of like Sunset Boulevard and places like that, where I'd get a tenner for everyone I moved, you know, took up there. So there's all sorts of Polish and Finnish and Norwegian visitors who had no idea that I wasn't an official tour guide. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and taking them, you know, they, where's the late night, you know, and, and so there is a sort of wonderful subject. There's a, there's a freedom in Soho. Everybody knew I was fucked up, um, except me, of course. Um, and so actually people were kind. I wasn't, and I manipulated and took advantage of what I call the anonymity of, of Soho. And if you're not someone that lives and works here, it, it's, you know, it draws you in, the bright lights and all the rest. Of it, and it's sort of 24-7 mentality. You could hide in there. So to me, it was a place to hide. That's, that's why I came. I'm just thinking about you being a guide, and I was just thinking about the recent Olympics <laughs> and, um, and how busy you might have been during that time. Yes, I'm an official London greeter. Oh, uh, yeah, I would have had you over. <laughs> I'd have ended up in the Sunset Lower. But I mean, just like practical things, like where, where did you, did you wash? I mean, where did you, you know, it's did you... ridiculous. No, I mean, um, I, I just, I, no, mean, I want um, to know, like, yes, you how did, did you live practically? Well, where did because you eat, you know? Um, well, you would help yourself to a sandwich in any of the sort of pop-up supermarkets you get so, you know i mean i i, d I didn't pay for anything right. apart from drugs um and it's very easy to you know people get they oh, i suppose the word is they become blind to you if you look down and out and you you, you know and i'm not really great at low profile it's just a character defect that i have but i could blend into the you know, and I think people would say, rather than have me kick off or mm. make a fuss and, and just basically smell the place out, it, for, for the price of a sandwich, I let him go. Yeah. So you learn where to, where to take your chances and where not to. So like, if, you've, if you've lost all the status that you evidently, that you evidently had being privately educated and having a, having a good upbringing and you're living in a skip and you're mm. stealing food and not washing and you're a drug addict, where, how do you get to the bottom in Soho, because the bottom in Soho, I guess, is further down than in other places. How do you get there, and how do you get back up? Um, well, I, I guess I was lucky in that I got my gallop was stopped by, by arrest. You know, as as I sunk lower, the if you like the grandiosity of my thinking went proportionately the other way. So, you know, making the leap from chicken wings out of Sainsbury's to Nat West Bank, <laughs> clearly deluded, but, un but unaware that I was, you know, you, the, the thing so about... people who work in Nat West Bank are robbing it as we speak, so yeah, I mean, we're really I worried about that. Actually, the level of again, I, I thank you, <laughs> you for know. mentioning it, Danny. I, I come back to the fact that I was actually, again, performing a public service, <laughs> <laughs> a, a little ahead of its time, but um, had we known that that now what we then what we know now about bankers, yeah. I, I would have been given a medal <laughs> instead of a whatever it was. So, so the judge that you were up in front of at that point said to you that he want that he saw some way of being able or she saw some way of being able to rehabilitate you. The 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 most wonderful thing about about my story was a, a, a wonderful man called uh, Judge Phillips, Judge Justin Phillips, who recognised in me. Uh, the human being and he said to me when I was in the dock and I, every three weeks I would have to go up for sentencing so it's like take ten months later and I'm still living in this hideous limbo uh, eventually moved from prison to um, 
effectively as a bail hostel, which is a place where they bring lifers and paedophiles back into society after having served long sentences. So not my natural you know, playmates, it has to be said. And he realized that the human in me became open to hearing. The circumstances of my life had got so bad that, and faced with a, you know, effectively either a long prison term, probably four or five years, he looked at me and he said, and he just went candidly, what am I to do with you, Mr. Roy? And against all my instinct and training when in the dock, which is, of course, to lie, God's sake, don't tell the truth, um, I just looked at him and I just went, help me, actually. And I broke down and I, and I, I, I you know, I, you know th that that moment in the hospital when I saw myself, and then I'm sitting, you know, waiting to go back to prison in a courtroom. It's all over, you know, I've abandoned my children. My, nobody wants to speak to me. Uh, yeah, I was the loneliest man, self-inflicted, but the loneliest man on the planet. And he, he, he gave me a flicker that not everyone was out to get me. The world wasn't hostile. If you smoke the amount of crack cocaine that I took, you are, a, a smile is a threatening gesture. The paranoia is so strong. But this guy, so of course I've come off the, the hide and drugs and I'm just living this suspended animation life, sort of one foot in jail, one foot out, not sure what's gonna happen. He, um, he, he saw something. And he, he talked to me as a human. And just to briefly finish, he, he, he kind of took an interest in me, he rehumanized me, if that makes sense. And I got a lot of help from a lot of other people who'd been in a similar place who I managed to find. I was very lucky. But the formal court system saw this guy, every, all my crime was drug related, they could see that. And I remember saying to him in one conversation, I said, if you send me to jail, you're just gonna have a bigger problem to deal with when I get out. Mm. And he sort of, he understood that. And so I was given, uh, uh, I call it care in the community. It wasn't, I was given a community-based order where I had to report to him every week, uh, every fortnight, and I had to report to the probation services. And he and I established a rapport, and I then went about my life, and I got involved with an organization which, on a daily basis, helped me to find a way to live without doing all that nonsense that I did. And the, the, the wonderful ending to that bit is, three, four years later, this same judge, a very enlightened man, recognized that more than 80%, I think, of the cases that came in front of him were a drug-related crime. And I had stayed clean. I, you know, I'd stopped using it. And, and he, he was developing a, um, a thing called the Dedicated Drugs Court, which happens in, in, out in West London. And he was trying to speak to the Quango or whoever the government body that was going to fund this idea. It was quite radical. Um, where he was going to say, I'm not going to send these drug addicts to prison, I'm going to offer them help and treatment, and I'm going to give them some support to change their lives. He asked the organization that I, that I had been lucky enough to find to send a sort of representative down to go and have a chat with his, his committee. And I walked in there. He had no idea it was going to be me. I had no idea it was going to be him. And I walked in, and this judge who had the power of life and death over me, as it seemed at the time, just stood up and went, oh my God, Radcliffe. Stood up, gave me a huge hug. He was sort of crying and just turned to everyone and said, this is the guy I was telling you about. 
So I'd effectively been a guinea pig for his new philosophy on how to deal with people who stole meat out of Sainsbury's and did bullshit <laughs> bank robberies to feed a drug habit. So I was incredibly lucky yeah. in that circumstance gave people, put people in my way at a time when I was able to hear them. I'm going to take two questions from mm -hmm. for you. One and then two from the audience. Um, I'm very moved by your story, but I do wonder Do you, do you feel any sense of shame for the things that, that you did um, at that time? Absolutely. And what I feel most ashamed about wasn't the obvious stealing and thievery, which I do feel bad about, and I, I had to pay a price for that, which I did, but was um, my daughter's birthday party. At Stretter Meisterink, it was going to be held. And she stood outside waiting for Daddy to come. And all her friends and her mum were saying, come on, Miles, come and enjoy your party. No, no, Daddy's coming, Daddy's coming. And uh, Daddy was in a crack house somewhere behind Dean Street smoking the present. He was never going to show. So I feel deeply ashamed that most of the price of, of that period of my life was paid for by the people that loved me most and anyone that got in my way. I was ruthlessly self-centered. Um, so yes, I do feel a sense of shame, but I, I also have been able to, if you like, proportionalize that and find a way to make recompense, which I continue to try and do. Well, I mean, I think, yeah, I think that's a very important part of reveling in shame is, is ultimately selfish, but making amends for it is remorse, and that's productive. Lady there. <laughs> Thank you, fellow countrywomen. <laughs> so I know where to go if it all goes wrong yeah. again. So I suppose my quite an ended question is, do you kind of wish then that those people who were thinking they were helping you by turning a blind eye to your ham on rye habit, if they had actually done something and stepped in there, that maybe I said the earlier point, do you kind of wish maybe some people had? I, can't, I, th I think the question is, is, is quite sophisticated in a way because it's like, that you know, sometimes we might think that we're helping um, by you know, if we if we if we were turning a blind eye to crime and, and the proceeds of crime, but in actual fact, maybe they were perpetuating the problems. You wish that there had been intervention earlier. Were you even conscious of that? I am not sure that you were, but yes, I was very conscious of it. And that they couldn't have been being able to manipulate people's kindness is something you learn to do very quickly. It becomes a very survivalist nature. Mm. Uh, do I think we should turn a blind eye? No. It's all about taking personal responsibility. And it's no one else's fault that I... I mean, the best thing that happened to me was, was I was forced to face the consequences of my actions. For as long as I could get away with it, I, I, was, I, I could live in the delusion that I was all right. So if the answer is, should we intervene and should we nick drug addicts for doing crime? Yes. Should we just send them to prison? No. Okay. Uh, uh, Richard, I will take your question. I was wondering what happened to the friend with the Yeah, it's a really good question. <laughs> what happened to the, the friend with the kind of strangely Californian voice who, <laughs> who, who was like, hey. Let me tell you, the, 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 um, 
Most of my friends fell by the wayside. I wasn't a good friend to know. Are we talking about Dell? No, no, the friend before. The friend, the friend. Oh my God! Yeah. Um, I thought you were going to call him for a second. Go like, PT, yeah, he's just in my pocket. I wish I could. He. Um, it's really sad, actually. He's. Uh, I saw him um, eight days ago. He's a terribly sad, lonely, drug-addicted figure. And I love him very much. I, there isn't a lot I can individually do to help him. But, you know, I guess I hope I'm going to be there when he decides to... It's a brave decision to change your life from, from one form to another, regardless of whether you approve of that lifestyle or not is irrelevant. If it's what you're used to, it's where you feel safe. And to ask someone to step away from that, is, it's a big ask, and it needs a lot of help and support. Now, I would hope to be there for him in a positive way. He thought, he believed he was helping. Yeah. I think this is a really good point at which to have a huge round of applause for a Soho survivor. Thank you very much, Bradford.